Well, good morning, Covenant Network. Here we are on this Monday morning, December 20th, the final week of Advent. We've got a lot of preparing to do this week, and we're going to do that here on Roadmap to Heaven. And today we've got a lot in store for you. There's a lot we want to get to before Christmas Eve. So let us begin in prayer as we always do in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day for all the intentions of your Sacred Heart in union with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world, in reparation for my sins, for the intentions of all my relatives and friends, and in particular for the intentions of the Holy Father. Amen. Our Christmas anticipation prayer, Hail and blessed be the hour and moment in which the Son of God was born of the most pure Virgin Mary at midnight in Bethlehem in the piercing cold. In that hour, vouchsafe, we beseech thee, O God, to hear our prayer and grant our desires through the merits of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and of his blessed Mother. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as I said, we've got a lot to get to on the show today. We're going to be talking by phone with Father Jeffrey Kirby in just a few minutes about a common situation, unfortunately, that a lot of us encounter when we get together with friends and family for the Christmas Holy Day and Holiday, and we're going to talk about how to navigate that together and what our response should be, as uh, as Father would say, as believers. And then later in the show, we're going to go on the road to visit with Monsignor Morris. Next week, we celebrate Christmas, but in that, we're going to celebrate the Feast of some Martyrs, and it seems a little counterintuitive, so we'll go visit with Monsignor to learn all about those celebrations later in the show. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Roadmap to Heaven. When we come back, we'll be joined by Father Jeffrey. Kirby. Prayer for a family. O oh, dear Jesus, I humbly implore you to grant your special graces to our family. May our home be the shrine of peace, purity, love, labor, and faith. I beg you, dear Jesus, to protect and bless all of us, absent and present, living and dead. O oh, Mary, loving mother of Jesus and our mother, pray to Jesus for our family, for all the families of the world, to guard the cradle of the newborn the schools of the young, and their vocations. Blessed St. Joseph, holy guardian of Jesus and Mary, assist us by your prayers in all necessities of life. Ask of Jesus that special grace which he granted to you to watch over our home at the pillow of the sick and dying, so that with Mary and with you, heaven may find our family unbroken in the sacred heart of Jesus. Amen. We are back. You are listening to Roadmap to Heaven, and I'm always excited to say that we're talking with Father Jeffrey Kirby on the phone today from Our Lady of Grace Catholic Church out in South Carolina. Father, good to have you with us today. Good to be on the show, Adam. Thank you. Well, it's no surprise and really uh, no secret that a lot of us will be getting together with friends and loved ones and family over the coming weeks as we draw closer to the Christmas holiday and then our Christmas festivities into the new year and our New Year's celebrations. And more and more, people of goodwill find themselves in this predicament, Father, that they're invited to spend time with family or a friend, and they're invited to someone's house, and they say, oh, how long have you been married? And the answer is, oh, we're not married, we, but we've been living together for fill-in-the-blank here for however many uh, months or years or so on like this. And 
You know, as we've said before, sadly, this is becoming more of a cultural norm, but that does not mean that it's something the church necessarily says, oh, we have no problem with this. In fact, it's quite problematic. And I want to start there, Father, before we talk about how do we even approach this from a pastoral standpoint as a grandparent or an aunt, an uncle, a brother, a sister, cousin, whatever, let's get to the why this is problematic. So if we could, Father, why is cohabitation among young people or or really anyone problematic outside of the covenant of marriage? Yes, Adam, I'm I'm grateful for this question. And and when you mentioned about anyone, uh, I, I want to throw in this conversation uh, the older generation. Oftentimes, perhaps they're widows or widowers, and, and at the end of their life, or, or towards the end of their life, um, think that somehow cohabitation is now possible. So we have a lot of older people who are also cohabitating, and sometimes it, it sends the wrong message to the younger generation. So when we talk about cohabitation, while it's uh, principally among the young, um, I've seen in the older demographic that suddenly they think that, well, because they were faithful with their marriage and their spouse died, that now it's okay. So <laughs> I just want to mention that group as well in terms of, of talking about uh, cohabitation. So in its essence, why it's wrong is because, you know, the nuptial friendship, when God calls one man and one woman to be together, to, to be a couple, is to be marked by the sacrament of holy matrimony. So there's a dignity and honor. We can, we can speak of even privileges that, that pertain to this nuptial friendship, and, and anything that takes parts of this, so these blessings, these graces, uh, you know, these uh, privileges, and usurps them, and uses them in a different type of friendship or in a different way, offends the dignity of marriage. So, for example, a couple, younger or older, who suddenly begin to cohabitate, they're living as if they are married, but they're not. So, in terms of the Christian tradition, it's pretty clear, and we have a great reverence the holy matrimony, and anything that offends it immediately has the concern of the Church, especially if it's a younger couple that might be thinking about marriage, because that means that their start to marriage is already started on the wrong foot. Let's get into that really quickly here, because this is a common reason you hear among a lot of young people in, in their lives is, well, we want to make sure that we're compatible before we get married. We want to make sure that we would do okay living together, which on the surface might sound like an okay thing. You know, before I go try out for the baseball team, I might want to go to the batting cage and see if I can hit a baseball. That makes sense. But this is not a good thing for couples to engage in. Exactly. And in terms of seeing that compatibility, you know, this is where the Church you know, encourages a very transparent, open courtship. So certainly the time of dating, and then when there's a time of engagement, that you know there is this type of conversation that they are getting to know each other, you know, in many different ways, spending time together, uh, enjoying each other's interests, uh, learning about each other, seeing each other's strengths and weaknesses, and all that can be done without cohabitation, because once there's cohabitation, they begin to live as if they're married, which means they are acting like they're being married, but they're still living as single people which means the odds are against them. I mean, Adam, the stats are staggering in terms of those who cohabitated and eventually found themselves married and then divorced. The, the rate in terms of the divorces of, of those who have cohabitated is, is significantly higher than couples that were not. And the reason why is because they get married, but they've already been living as if they're married, but they were single. And so that change suddenly begins 
to, you know, not happen. So they're still, when they get married, they're still living as if they're two single people that have to be sharing a house. And so for the young couple, especially that thinks or is pursuing or thinking about marriage, uh, yes, like get to know each other and, and, and so on, but there are certain, you know, parts of, of a relationship, a nuptial relationship that are off limits, cohabitation, obviously sexual expression and so on. Like that, that is reserved to the sacrament of holy matrimony, and it takes the act of faith to say, yeah, I, I might end up living with this person and there are challenges I wasn't expecting. Well, welcome to holy matrimony. Right? Exactly. I mean, this is, you know, and the faith that that sacrament and that vocation calls forth uh, from, from the person, especially from the believer. You know, Father, I think back to when my wife and I got engaged, a good friend of mine who who is a, a great uh, role model for me in our Catholic faith said, Adam, I, I'm so happy for you, but I want to tell you right now, welcome to what will, without a doubt, be the hardest experience of chastity you have lived to date. And I looked at him kind of puzzled and said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, when we, when we think about sins against chastity and, and you're dating someone, it's easy to say, put the brakes on here. we got to be really careful here because I'm not even sure I'm called to marry you. And I, I certainly don't want to commit sins against the sixth commandment with you. But then when you realize, I believe God's calling me to marry this person, and you've made that promise to one another, to that pledge of engagement, that you will exchange the nuptial vows, it's a lot harder to put the brakes on. And so just as, you know, I, it would be a bad idea for me to go in a bakery where I could have everything I wanted free of charge for the entire time I'm there, because I would fall into that sin of gluttony, no questions asked. I would not go to that bakery. We have to avoid these occasions of sin. And that's one of the big problems with cohabitation, is it's such a, a temptation and an invitation to that uh, sin against the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, which is exactly what happens when that relation takes place outside of the bonds of holy matrimony. Yes, yes, and, and, and definitely, you know, to highlight especially those sins of the Sixth Commandment that oftentimes are very grave, you know, so it can, can be mortal sins. Uh, but, Adam, I can also say that even let's take, for example, the couple that is cohabitating, living in separate bedrooms, and, and are really observing a chaste lifestyle, right? But let's say that. And, and that's, you know, probably severely the minority um, in terms of cohabitating couples. Um, but, but let's just take that for, for granted. You know, still it would be wrong, misplaced. You are not married. Being able to be together in a romantic relationship, sharing a habitation, sharing a home, an apartment, whatever, is the privilege of the nuptial friendship. So I, I think that, you know, this is the rise of cohabitation is one of many, you know, real assaults on the dignity and the uniqueness of holy matrimony. There's a powerful gift there. If I can mention one other challenge I oftentimes get from young couples is, is the financial. You know, they say, well, you know, things are hard to, to have two, you know, two separate uh, residences, and, you know, it, it's cheaper and more affordable and, and more doable. We have to pay off student loans. We have bills, and, and, and this is just the best financial arrangement. And I take the, the young couple right to the Scriptures. I said, look, we go to the book of Genesis. Jacob was willing to work 14 years, almost hard labor for his future father-in-law, in order to marry Rachel, right? So this man was so in love with this woman that he was willing to work. I tell the young couple, if you're in that much debt, then you should prolong your dating or your courtship in order to reduce your debt, because 
let's go in terms of our full moral tradition. When a couple marries, certainly they can, by natural means, regulate uh, their family, but they should be ready in case it happens that there's a conception on the honeymoon. So I tell young couples, you have to be ready that nine months from now you might have a baby. Now, again, within moral means, there's a way to kind of regulate and, and, and plan their family, but you have to be in a position where you're ready, and that includes financial. So if you're saying right now that things are so stretched financially that you have to cohabitate in order to eventually get married, then there's some more work we have to do. And I tell people, offer these sacrifices, because this is a vocation, this is a way of life, a sacrament worth sacrificing for. Amen. Well, we've identified the problem. We're going to take a quick break here, and then we're going to come back and talk about how we approach this, because we can't just be like the ostrich and stick our head in the ground and say there is no problem, it does not exist, and it's something that more and more of us are encountering in our daily lives. We're talking with Father Jeffrey Kirby. You're listening to Roadmap to Heaven. We'll be back in just a few moments. We are back. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Father Jeffrey Kirby this morning about the problem of cohabitation among young Christians and, you know, if we're being honest, even among older Christians. And before the break, we got into why this is a problem, not just spiritually, but some of the other facets of it as well. But now we want to shift our conversation to how do we approach this? Because odds are good, especially as we increase our social circles, we know someone who is living in this situation. And Father, I can't imagine that the proper response is you get invited over to a family member's house or a friend's house and you discover the situation is that they're cohabitating and you just declare, this is sinful, I must leave this house (laughs) immediately, a pox upon your house, and and I will never return and make some big stand and some big scene and then never come back. That's probably not the most charitable response. I'm not going to rule it out, but I want to defer to your uh, pastoral expertise here. What do we do? when we find family members or friends uh, in the situation of cohabitation? Yes, I think big picture, you know, when we find the rise of cohabitation, it's a clear sign that there needs to be more teaching in terms of discipleship. So that, you know, big picture, and even preventively in in some respects, to really emphasize as a disciple of Jesus Christ, a person of goodwill, our entire life belongs to Jesus Christ. And, and Adam, I think that has to be so stressed on every level, how we spend our money, how we vote, how a couple prepares for marriage, um, how we live, literally in, in our homes and so on, that big picture is that emphasis on discipleship of Jesus Christ, that we follow the Christian way. And Adam, it, it's becoming, once again, a very countercultural way of life. So the, for those who accept the Lord Jesus and choose to, to love Him, to follow Him, uh, this is part of it. So, you know, in terms of how marriage is prepared for or how people live, uh, whether they, you know, are single, and of course, if they're going to pursue marriage, marriage must happen first before they're living together and so on. So that's big picture, you know, just in terms of how we could prevent some of this, right? But in, you know, in, in the moment, in the situation, I would encourage people that when we find those situations, um, ask questions, because we're at a point now where we can presume nothing. I mean, some years ago, I was asked by a, a very uh, charming young couple to, to come and, and bless their home, and in the midst of the conversation, I found out they were cohabitating. 
<laughs> they had no idea. Like, they are literally inviting their priests to come bless their home. <laughs> They're cohabitating, right? They just had no idea. And and I think by asking questions, we can find out where where is this couple, where is this man, this woman, in terms of their understanding of the Christian way of life. And then from there, from the answers we get from that question, begin to provide gentle guidance or further questions and try to attempt in a, in a uh, very compassionate way to give some witness. And sometimes that's timing. Like Sometimes we don't have to try to cram the entire gospel in terms of, of marriage and, and preparing for marriage in, in an hour-and-a-half meal at a table. Right? You know, uh, Sometimes, you know, our task is, is we give five loaves, two fish. We, we just we give small thoughts, we ask, good questions that might sit on their souls, and then we see where it goes. Of course, if there's a sustained relationship with the person, you know, someone's a, a close family member or, or a dear friend or uh, a friends of dear friends or whatever the relationship might be, then, of course, you have more time. But I think our task is to take a posture of listening and, and to ask questions, and then, as best we can, to try to give those small pieces of divine wisdom. Indeed. You know, one of the things I think of, recently we had a guest on the show, uh, John Labriola, who, who said this, that uh, following the example of St. Monica, you know, we should talk more to God about Augustine than we do talk to Augustine about God. And there, there's a certain part of that that our first response probably is to pray, but then as you said, that prayer leads us to witness and to discipleship. Father, I'll be honest, I think of my parents and the, the example they gave for me, and, you know, they always wanted us to flourish, and they want, that meant they wanted us to be able to get out of the house. Um, there was a point where I was living out of the house. In fact, my brother and I shared an apartment. It was a wonderful experience, but then he got married and moved away to Chicago, and I could not make rent on my own, and they said, come back home. And what was great about that was... You know, certainly an expectation, look, this is an open-ended. You don't get to stay here until you're 50 or anything like that. <laughs> we want you to find your path. We want you to find your vocation and to flourish in it. But because of that, when Beth and I started dating, she was immediately welcome to come spend time at our house and be with our family, which was great to hear my parents' insights about her to me and how well we worked together and where we didn't work so well together. And the same with her family. She was living with her parents at the time. And, you know, I, I have to give a shout out to my mom and dad. In their generosity, they were charging me rent, which I thought, why are you charging me rent? But then when we got married, they said, all of that rent you've paid over the last year and a half, two years, we've been saving it for this moment. And that was part of their wedding gift to us, was to say, everything you put wow. into becoming successful on your own, we're now giving you to put into your marriage to help with the success of your marriage. And I think when we talk about the response to this, for those that are parents, my children are young. I don't have to worry about this yet, but I will at some point, perhaps for the older parents. It's really a call for us as first teachers to say, what are we going to do to support our children so that they don't think, you know, we mentioned before the break that some couples say, well, it's a financial thing. We can't afford to live out on our own without help. You know, what are we doing as parents to foster our children to help them avoid making wrong decisions? And Adam, to your point, that's where historically even extended families were great. So, for example, a young person wants to, to go out and be, you know, in a sense on their own, you know, away from uh, their parents as they grow. And historically, that's where aunts or uncles or older cousins 
uh, or, or close friends of the family would also play a part. And I think as we, as we see the dismantling of, of families, admittedly, it gets a little harder. You know, I, I love hearing the story about you and your wife, that you get to know each other. As you were dating, you were able to get to, you know, to know each other's families because sometimes when I'm preparing couples for marriage, it's shocking to me that their parents have never met. You know, mm. like, and that's becoming more the norm. And, and sometimes like, they might meet the week of the wedding. You know, I'm thinking, you learn a lot by getting to know your future spouse's parents. Right? Indeed. You know? Indeed. You know? So I, I think that, that families, as much as families today can, can retrieve some of that, you know, and for sometimes it starts with our young parents who, who make an intentional effort. We're going to take the long trip. We're going to make sure that, you know, the family is a part of, of our family. We're going to make sure that the extended family is, is known to our children and, and develop those relationships. You know, it can be work. We live in a mobile society. Family's not as much the focus as it, as it was historically, to the great um, sorrow of, of, of many. But, um, but I think young families can do it. You know, it will take more work. I think it's powerful when I see the young couples in my parish, and they're teaching their children as their children get older. So you can imagine, like, you know, parents speaking to their, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-old children about cohabitation, like why we don't do that as Christians. So, and they, maybe they were at a dinner where there was a couple say, we love them, you know, and, and so on, but to understand why that's something we don't do. You know, so even in a sense of the positive or the negative examples that we might see, for parents to really be proactive in terms of teaching that. But you can imagine the family that's, you know, fragmented, there's a lot going on, they're distracted, and these things happen, so they're at a dinner and, and there's this cohabitating couple, and the parents never use the opportunity later to teach their children. Um, I, I think it's a great loss. I think that young families are at a disadvantage culturally, but we always have been historic. We've been so spoiled in the West for the past couple hundred years. I mean, we've forgotten that as Christians, it's supposed to kind of hurt a little bit, and we're kind of countercultural, and, you know, this way of life requires a lot of grace and a lot of Christian formation. It does. Friends, we could talk about this literally all day, but we, we sadly do not have the time. You know, I think what I'm taking away is this, Father, that number one, spiritually, cohabitation is problematic for a number of reasons, um, certainly high among them, the temptation for sins against the Sixth Commandment. But beyond that, friends, look at the data. The data among couples who cohabitate, or for lack of a better term, simulate family life outside of the covenant of marriage. It just does not bode well for success, for the healthy raising of children, and the lasting of the relationship. There's a reason God gives us a way of doing things. It's not just to be negative and say, you can't, you can't, you can't. He's saying, this is the best way, and I want you to have the very best. So don't settle for less. I often say, don't settle for the $12.99 chain restaurant steak special when our Lord is offering you the best, biggest steak you could get at the nicest steakhouse in the world for free, because that's, that's what the spiritual life is. It's the best way for free. God doesn't charge, but we have to be humble enough to say yes to what he asks us to do to walk that narrow path. Father, could I ask you to close our time with a prayer for our listeners? Absolutely. Let us pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon all those who are preparing for marriage, all those who are asking questions about cohabitation. We ask just among all of our hearts that you deepen us in our love, our reverence for the sacrament of holy matrimony, May you grant us your blessings, may you show us your faith. May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
Friends, you're listening to Roadmap to Heaven. We'll be back after this. Those of you who listen to the show regularly know that I like to look ahead so that I can be prepared. And as we begin this final week of Advent, I would like to look ahead to next week, for we will not be on the air with the show. We'll be on the air bringing you the best of Christmas music during the Christmas season. And there are some feasts that we should pay attention to. So here to help us break into the liturgical feasts we will celebrate next week, we are happy to be with Monsignor Morris visiting at the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine. Monsignor, good morning to you. Adam, good morning to you. Thank you, as always, for inviting me to be with you on the show. I very much appreciate it especially talking about what we're going to be talking about today. Well, Monsignor, I was looking ahead, and a good friend, a good priest friend of mine, Father Rainier, said, Adam, I want you to listen to this carol. It's a setting. And I said, oh, I've heard I've heard that Coventry carol. And he said, no, you haven't heard this. This is a new setting by a composer named Philip Stopford, Lule Lule. And Monsignor, as we sat in his office listening to it, two grown men, we both started crying. It, it, it was hauntingly beautiful. And I said, you know, I, I know of the, the text, but I haven't paid close attention to it over the years. And he said, well, this was composed for the Feast of the Holy Innocents. And this would be the lullaby that the mothers would be singing to their children who are about to be slaughtered. Now, not that this is a, an actual lullaby that was handed down from generation to generation. This is a composer giving us something to ponder or to meditate upon. And it was beautiful. And it was haunting, and it was very unsettling. And to me, it seemed like everything we would not want to be feeling during the joyous season of Christmas. And you know what? Before we even talk about this, I think we need to play it right now. I think it's a very good idea. Let's do that. So again, Monsignor, not what I think of when I, I think trumpets and, and O Come All Ye Faithful and Enjoy to the World and Hark the Herald and all of these joyous Christmas songs that we will be singing at Midnight Mass and on Christmas morning and throughout the octave. And yet, in these days that follow Christmas, the Holy Innocents are just one of the feasts of martyrs we're going to celebrate. I mean, we have St. Stephen the Proto-Martyr, St. John the Apostle and Evangelist. We have St. Thomas Becket or Thomas of Canterbury. This is, you know, I, I've heard of red and green for Christmas, but this is an awful lot of red for martyrs. Why does this happen in the, in the life of the church? Well, the church is uh, a very wise mother and a great teacher for us. And immediately upon celebrating the mystery of the incarnation, we are forced to enter into the fullness of the mystery of the incarnation. It's very easy to allow ourselves to be lulled into, if you will, a false sense of what the full Paschal mystery is as we appear upon the Christ child. But we know the fullness of the story. Obviously, the shepherds who testify to the truth of Christ, um, our Blessed Mother, St. Joseph, Simeon and Anna, all of these wonderful figures who will be with us during our Christmas season, as our mother was, and then St. Elizabeth, John the Baptist in the Advent season, all of them testifying to the Word becoming flesh, and of course, the, you know, the iconic images of the angels singing, the shepherds watching, uh, the animals bowing low in adoration because they know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is present there. And it really is a pastoral scene. And we can then be lulled into the sense that this is the fullness of Christianity. 
It is the beginning of the unfolding of the fullness of Christianity that will culminate, as far as the Lord is concerned, this child born of Mary, born by the shadowing of the Holy Spirit, is going to suffer and die. And so the church puts immediately in our faces, says, let's just deal with this. And because of her great faith in who he is, the God-man, there is no fear of leaning into the mystery of the cross, and there is no confusion, there's no conflict with celebrating the fullness of the Christmas season by also celebrating, again, literally the very next day is the celebration of the first martyr. What is that all about? And why, I mean, can you give us just a couple of days to maybe enjoy, um, if you will, you know, deck the halls and all of the things that you were mentioning? And the church says, you, yes, as a matter of fact, you can have that. And you also must have this as well. And so it's a good reminder for us spiritually, this, what we're celebrating, of course, is the coming of Christ in history. And then we anticipate the coming of Christ in the end of time. Bernard of Clairvaux has a a beautiful, I've been reflecting on this on my own, has a beautiful homily that he gave, a reflection on what he refers to as the three comings of Christ, reminding us also of the coming of Christ to us on a daily basis. And so it's there in a sense that we can argue that the church says, okay, we know what happened in history. We know we are preparing for the future, but part of your preparation for the future is to allow Christ in your life now. And if you're going to do that, which you have to do, then you're going to get all of it, not just the pieces that you like, the ones that are comfortable, or the ones that are pastorally sensitive and pleasing. You're going to get the ones that make you cry, the ones that make you suffer. So we have the Holy Innocents. We have St. Stephen. We have Thomas Beckett. I'm going to go a little bit out of order of the liturgical days, but perhaps in more of a chronological order of the occurrence. Recently, we aired a segment with Monsignor Cronin on the show, and we were talking about the Advent theme of light and that Christ is the light of the world. Uh, We sing light of nations and so on and so forth. And Monsignor was very uh, clear to point out that what does Scripture say? That the light came into the world and the darkness has not overcome it, but that there are those who prefer the darkness to the light. So going back some 2,000 years, it wasn't when our Lord started upsetting the status quo with his teaching and, and what he was preaching during his public ministry, but at the time of his infancy, Herod is afraid. Herod, I am guessing, would have known the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. No? If you read Scripture, it seems one of the one of the points of contention that goes beautifully to the prologue of John's gospel is he came to his own his own did not know him and so there's that scrambling when the the three wise men come to Herod's court to say we're here to pay homage and they're all kind of like well, what are you talking about you know we didn't know this and then they go back and they start reading scripture about Bethlehem the least of the cities becomes the greatest so on and so forth and so there seems to be uh, if not that they would have known it like we would know things as a young man, but as we get older, we put those things out of our mind. There certainly was not that joyous anticipation upon hearing that which they had prepared for and been longing for for millennia at that point. To hear that announced, their hearts should have been filled with joy. But the idea that the, the prophets would have prophesied that there will be a Messiah, yes. as basic as that, do we think that Herod even had an idea that there would be, a, at least the religion taught, there would be a Messiah at some point? I, I would say yes, and I would say he probably has it in the same way that we think about the end times. We know that they're coming, we know of them as an idea, but the reality of them 
when confronted with it, when it comes, is going to be quite shocking to a great many people. If, so. if it was tomorrow, I'll be honest, I'm, I hope I'm ready. I'm not quite sure. Correct. Exactly. This is a good place to take a, a quick break, and we will continue our discussion with Monsignor Morris when we come back. The Alma Redemptoress, loving mother of the Redeemer, gate of heaven, star of the sea, assist your people who have fallen, yet strive to rise again. To the wonderment of nature you bore your creator, yet remained a virgin after as before. You who received Gabriel's joyful greeting, have pity on us, poor sinners. Friends, you're listening to Roadmap to Heaven. We're talking about these feasts of martyrs that come in the octave of Christmas with Monsignor Morris this morning. So Herod receives the three wise men, the Magi, and now he's baffled, he's confused, he's perplexed, and he's worried that this means the end of his kingship, I'm imagining, and he reacts in an incredibly violent way. So when we talk about the holy innocents, uh, could you remind our listeners specifically, what are we talking about? So we know from sacred scripture that Herod, upon hearing this news, is not able to actually determine the specific moment when our Lord is born by virtue of the arrival of the wise men. And so he basically orders the killing of all males two years or younger uh, throughout his land to satisfy him and make sure there's no, if you will, one of what's word I'm searching for, uh, there's no force, if you will, against his throne and his rule and his kingship. And, and it also parallels what we know in, in sacred scripture in the Old Testament when Pharaoh drowns all of the babies um, in the water and the cry that comes forth from that, all the male children are drowned. This response, if you will, to the reality of God is indeed violent. Um, it, it's It's overwhelming. Uh, I've seen a, a couple of depictions of this in kind of older movies, uh, and they do a beautiful job of obviously never showing it, but the lament and the cry, which we just heard in the carol, that's that's what you see, and that is, it's beyond the pale. No child, no mother ever wants to lose her children, and now here you have children being literally ripped from the arms of their mothers and being slaughtered right in front of them. And as you beautifully pointed out, one of the reasons why we celebrate this is at the very beginning, he is meant to be the downfall of many, and he's, he's, Herod is falling down. I mean, he is committing a, a sin that cries to heaven, this dis mass destruction of human life in his court that obviously goes along with him. You know, it, it's not just Herod, it's everyone's complicit, because they should have said, stop. Let's rejoice. Let's get with the wise men, and because this is what we've been preparing for, waiting for, wanting. And instead, what's their response? You know, it's death and violence and anger, anger that wells up to the point where it's willing to destroy innocent life. We're calling to mind. We're celebrating that in the midst, because we're celebrating that these then become, even before Stephen, although chronologically Stephen's feast is celebrated first, the, immediately upon coming into the world, he who is a sign of contradiction has martyrs, men, women, in this case men, but people willing to shed their blood in testimony to who he actually is. I want to skip over St. Stephen for a moment. No sure. disrespect to the first martyr, right. the proto-martyr, but uh, something you said just now reminded me of St. Thomas Beckett, and, and I love the wonderful—I've never seen the stage adaptation. But I've seen the film adaptation. So the play came first. But that line of the king, is there no one who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? 
And here you have what were two friends, the story tells us, the king and, and Thomas Beckett, who the king, through whatever channels he has available to him, has seen to it that Beckett becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury. And something changes in Beckett, and he stands for the faith going forward. And now the king is upset because he doesn't want to hear the challenge of the faith, and so he has Thomas Beckett killed. And it makes me think of King Herod and the Holy Innocents in a different way, but yet there are some similarities. Well, there is that beautiful parallel because it's obviously the Holy Innocents, it is Thomas Beckett, uh, it's Thomas More and John Fisher. The whole history of the unfolding of the mystery of the Incarnation and man confronting the power and majesty of Christ is that we have been specifically at odds with the state. We're at war with secular culture, secular power. And so it's, a, it's, it's apt in every age, but particularly in the age in which we find ourselves now, where the, the war between light and darkness is more prevalent and more prominent than maybe it was in the last several decades. There's always been conflict, there's always been tension, but we can see the result that happens when secular power is wielded against the power and the might of God, who always wins, by the way, always wins, but there is shedding of blood. And to be martyrs means we are to be believers in Christ, to accept the mystery of the child in our arms means we must be willing, like the holy innocents, like all of the martyrs, be willing to shed our blood. This can't just be, it's nice and warm and fuzzy, you know. Uh, it is that. It can be that. I mean, obviously, the Christmas season is indeed a season of joy and celebration. Um, but so is the mystery of the cross. We, I mean, what does St. Paul say? I preach Christ crucified. Not Christ incarnate, not Christ the babe in his mother's arm. I preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block and a folly. So this this sense we have, which unfortunately has seeped into the life of the church, where we have to apologize for the cross, or we have to downplay the cross, quite the opposite. We don't apologize or down. We, we rejoice. We, we boast, if you will, that we can, not in our own, but in being able to link our afflictions to the mystery of the cross. The cross is not something to be ashamed of or to be embarrassed, certainly nothing that can be avoided, but instead must be embraced. And even if, you know, sadly with the Holy Innocents, they they had no choice. They didn't know what they were testifying to, if you will. So knowledge is not the key here. It's a willingness to give oneself in defense of the truth of who this actually is. To this point, our conversation to some may sound just like a mere academic exercise. Let's hear the history of this and, and some of the theology of this. But I'd like to get into perhaps a little bit of the practical, what this means for you and I. Not that our celebrations cannot be a Norman Rockwell painting of Christmas and the family together around the table eating the, the Christmas turkey or goose or whatever it may be, but that the church points us in this direction to prepare us. So how do we put this into practice? What, what are the lessons, are these lessons we've learned, how should they be affecting our day-to-day life, not just in the octave of Christmas, but as we walk this spiritual journey that is life? Well, one of the fallacies, and, and most of my brother priests would agree with this because we experience this, is that the holiday season, the Christmas season, Advent, in preparation to and then leading from, are, are really some of the most difficult days for people. Uh, if for no other reason there's a struggle between the reality of which we find ourselves now and the nostalgia of our past experiences, so history is always beautifully rewritten, you know, and becomes much more idyllic in the rewriting than it was in the lived experience. 
or we're dealing with sadness and loss um, of loved ones who are absent, either physically or they because they have died or they cannot be here, fractures in the family, all sorts of tension. So the Norman Rockwell picture and painting is just that. It's, it's a, a, a reflection of, at times, a reality that is lived, but ultimately a desire, a reality we want and hope for, but actually doesn't come to pass. So what that means for us concretely is we have to be men and women who willingly carry the cross. There is suffering. There is sadness. Uh, I always speak about myself as a guy who's a glass half empty kind of guy. So um, I tend to sadness and sorrow and darkness very easily. And so I have no problem with that. But the difficulty, even for those of us maybe who dispositionally are a little bit on the darker side, if you will, of things, when we look at life in the world, have to not allow that darkness to lead to despair. That's the difference. Because it isn't that the world is absent from strife and struggle. What's different for us as believers in the mystery of the incarnation and the application of this in our daily lives is that we have an answer. We have the ability to remain strong in the midst of our suffering because our strength is in our crucified Lord and we're linking our sufferings to Him. So the the practical of this is every day you're going to confront something that is going to be off-putting, upsetting, difficult to deal with. It might be something large, sickness in your own life or in the lives of those you love. It might be calling to mind, you know, loved ones who have died and gone to new life. Uh, It might be broken relationships, past relationships that are fractured, Uh, siblings that you haven't spoken to, neighbors uh, where the fence is to keep everyone apart. We can particularize that any way we want. But as believers in what we're celebrating, the difference is we have to approach those with a hope and confidence of a Lord who can heal, a Lord who can give strength. We can never allow ourselves uh, to fall under the darkness because light indeed has dispelled that. But you can't run away from it either, and you can't expect that everything's going to be rosy. It's going to be joy-filled, it's going to be peace-filled, but it may not be easy. You mentioned before that the culture we live in now, even more so that battle between light and darkness is going on. I think to a a recent protest that was covered in the news, uh, we we talk about the holy innocence of our time, those who have been lost to the tragedy of abortion. And during this protest, um, there was a group of women who... Whether they actually did this or not, we don't know, but said that they were taking the abortion pill, the one that would induce an abortion in the first 48 hours of pregnancy, to protest for their right to choose. So we see very clearly in our day and age those who are so opposed to the teachings of our faith and the teachings of our Lord who would say, I will publicly destroy a child. Because that is what we believe, that in the womb it is a child, even when others might say it's a clump of cells. That is a life. I will publicly destroy this life because I reject the will of God. And and we might be left wondering, how could we live in a world where this happens or where cancer exists or where lives are taken innocently by violent crime or through poverty, through et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet it seems that what you're saying is we are reminded that on a starry night or not. I didn't know the weather report in Bethlehem. A baby was born in a manger in Bethlehem to the Blessed Mother, and that is the beginning of the answer that will be his passion, death, and resurrection, and God willing, one day lead for us being in heaven should we choose the light over the darkness. You know, as you beautifully describe, it is is the beginning, but it also is the fulfillment. And so, 
you know, obviously we, again, back to a little bit of theology, the evil that exists in the world, that has always been there. I mean, so when you were describing that protest, I was thinking, you know, when um, the state of New York legalized basically infanticide and, and, and the joy upon people's faces in celebrating that now we had the freedom to kill children is inexplicable for those of us who know and accept truth. But you can also then, you can see the parallel, I mean, of, of the anger and the hatred against anything that encroaches upon our freedom that led Herod to well up and send forth his minions literally to destroy life. There has always been this evil. We're the ones that introduced it. And maybe that's the reason why we're, we're so against any attempt that God has made throughout the Old Testament and then fulfilling those attempts, fulfilling his promises in his son, because we know how responsible we are. We did this to ourselves. And sometimes it's easier, as we know, not to admit the truth at all, and certainly not to admit my culpability in the truth. Maybe it's better to double down or triple down, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go whole hog, I'm going to embrace evil, I'm giving all myself... All right, but there was and an, an the time in history where the world literally was turned upside down, or maybe it was turned right side up. And now you have the choice, as you always did, the same choice Adam and Eve did, to actually live in the light and live in obedience. The difference is now, if you choose not to do it now, there's nothing coming after that's going to repair the damage you've done this time. Not that God leaves us on our own, but we now know that when the Lord comes again in his glory, uh, there's not going to be another coming after that, and another coming after that, and another coming after that. So there is also, as you're asking the practicals, there needs to be, as we were saying earlier, there needs to be a vigilance. I, if I were asked tomorrow to give an accounting of myself, it would be a poor one at best. I need to get my act together. The incarnation leads to the institution of the sacraments, and that is the means that our Lord has left us so that we would not be abandoned and hopeless, because the reality is I've sinned before, and I'm going to sin again. Not that I will it, but sometimes I end up willing it. I, I, I shouldn't say that. Not that I will it, because that's what sin is. We do. We will it. And he gives us a means to come back, and it's all possible because of the incarnation. Monsignor, this has been a, a wonderful discussion to help us get ready. Uh, on behalf of all of us, I would like to wish you a, a blessed remainder of Advent and a Merry Christmas. Thank and you. could I ask you to give the wonderful gift of prayer to our listeners this morning? Certainly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious and merciful Father, draw near to us and hear our prayers as we await the coming of our Savior. Open our hearts to receive him now, most especially in the most holy Eucharist that as we take Christ inside of ourselves like Our Lady, we may be obedient to him even unto death. And we make this prayer in all of our prayers through Christ our Lord. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, just as the children are counting down the days until Christmas comes. I've been counting down the weekend days until this new topic for our daily dose of encouragement. Patty, it's like Christmas has come early to be talking about these daily doses once again. Well, it's a joy to be here and to be talking about Christmas, which is just around the corner. And of course, we've seen the bumper stickers, Jesus is the reason for the season, and all of us want to make our Christmas a holy Christmas. So this week, we're going to just talk about ways, concrete ways, that you can put Christ First, in your Christmas, as you celebrate with your family, little things that you can do that might make a difference. So today, I just want to say, if you're doing your last-minute shopping, have you given Catholic gifts to your family members? I think this is really important. Catholic books, 
Catholic decor, maybe Catholic jewelry, a beautiful medal, Catholic t-shirts, Catholic music. All of these are ways that you can give little gifts that have a spiritual meaning and a purpose behind them. Every year in my family, I like to give a Catholic book, maybe my favorite book for that year that I discovered. Well, then share it with your loved ones. Go buy 10 copies of it and give that out as, as a stocking stuffer. So I would just want to encourage people to truly give Catholic gifts. There's a wonderful website called Brick House in the City that has awesome t-shirts um, that are really, really nice. I like to get on that website and buy those for the, my family members as well. So just think of a way that you can give a Catholic gift this Christmas. I'm already checking my list for who needs a Catholic gift. Patty, thank you so much for this daily dose of encouragement. Well, that is our show today. It's been a lot to talk about. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to say a special word of thanks to Monsignor Morris for welcoming us to the oratory, Father Jeffrey Kirby for taking the time to be with us by phone. But most importantly, let's give thanks to God for the time we've spent together in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, join us Wednesday morning on Roadmap to Heaven, when we will have a special Wednesday edition of the Roadmap Roundup with some very special guests. Again, that's Wednesday morning right here on Covenant Network at 7 a.m. Until then, I'm Adam Wright. Pray your rosary today.